Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're going to study Acts 10 today. But in order to get to Acts 10, I'd like to read some scripture from Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, if this is your first Sunday, or you're just joining us uh, last, uh, like last year around July up to Christmas, we studied the book of Isaiah. And as we got closer towards the end of that book, we started seeing how the author was very apocalyptic in the way that he was speaking about things that God would do, not just in the time period of Israel, but in the, the near future and in the distant future. And so what I want to do is I want to read something that we studied last year from Isaiah 56 so that our minds are fresh to see what God is doing in Acts chapter 10 today. Because what happens in Acts 10 today is a direct fulfillment to something that he said 700 years before this event actually took place. Okay, so let's get into it. Isaiah 56, I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. The Lord is speaking through him. And the Lord says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, they'll be accepted on my altar from my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now God made a promise in Isaiah 56 that foreigners, not just Jews, not just descendants of Abraham and Moses, Gentiles, foreigners, would be saved. And they not only would be saved, but they would be considered equal members of God's family. That when God extended the invitation to join his family, went beyond just the nation of Israel, beyond just Jewish people, when it extended into the Gentiles, that invitation would not be, come and be weird stepchildren in my family. Come on and you can live here, but you don't get full access to the stuff my kids get access to. The invitation is, I'm grafting you in and you are going to be every bit um, as much a part of this family, this tree, this kingdom, as the ones who received the original covenant through Moses. And that promise from Isaiah 56, as I said, was 700 years before the events of Acts chapter 10. So what I want us to do as we study Acts 10 today is twofold. One, I want us to rejoice in the fact that God is faithful in fulfilling his promises even though his timetable is different than your timetable. Okay? He is going to fulfill his promises. He always will. It may not necessarily be on your calendar or the day that you penciled it in on when you would like for it to take place, but it will always 
take place. He will fulfill his promises. That's one. And two is that God is always faithful to change his people. Those are two things that you could bet the farm on. That if he says something, it will happen. And in that process, the people he is saving, he is transforming. He is not going to call somebody and say, you know what? You were okay when you showed up, so there's nothing required of you. But these other kids, we're going to have to have a conversation. Everybody, it doesn't matter if you just got saved and you're 19 years old or you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years and you are well past your retirement age and you're into your 80s or your 90s, it does not matter if there is breath in your lungs. The Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is right now actively changing and transforming his people, and that includes you. And so that's what we're looking at today. And last week was interesting in Acts chapter 9 because we saw a couple examples of how that looks. We saw the Lord transforming people's lives by snatching up Saul, by opening blind eyes, by raising the dead. We also saw the challenge of forgiving people that you have something against. We also saw the way that the Holy Spirit challenges people to overcome fear, to plant deep roots, to fear the Lord in the way that they live. We're going to add to that list today in Acts chapter 10 with the story of Cornelius that one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit asks of his people to transform and change in is your heart towards other people. Ugh. <laughs> Can it be something else? Here's the thing. And I said this when we were praying and opening up the service. One of the things that's most appealing to most church people is that most churches do not preach a gospel that demands anything of them. What we're doing here is no different than you signing up for a fitness club or you know, taking on another hobby. But that's not what Christ died and rose again for. When he says, follow me, when he says, carry your cross, when he says you're going to share in my sufferings, the invitation looks different than what is often sold to us as what we need to do and how we are to live our Christian life. There is, there is no shortage in the kingdom of God, when you read the word of God, of the Holy Spirit just coming around one more time and saying, Hey, it's time to deal with that thing. Uh, what thing? I thought we already dealt with that. Well, I'm going to put you in this situation and your temper is going to flare and you're going to see that you didn't really actually deal with that thing. You just pretended like it wasn't there. It's time to deal with it. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants for his people. All right, this is radical, but are you ready for this? He wants you to live so free that there is not a single person on planet Earth that you think about winning an argument against. No more car rides home from the office and thinking, man, I should have said this. Or preparing for that conversation that might happen tomorrow because you just got to be on your guard. None, none of that. No more dreading family get-togethers because that person will be there? What would it be like to live that free, that so
somebody is not occupying the space in your mind so that you can't truly live free of all attachments? What would it be like to live in such a way that your heart is changed towards people that you no longer distinguish between, well, that person is considered unclean and is not worth my time or my attention? What would it be like to unseat yourself from God's throne and stop determining who is worth his love and who is not? And to live so open-handed that nobody gets on your nerves. I don't know what that looks like because I don't know that I'm there. I can tell you this, in walking with the Lord for 20 years, I, there's probably maybe, I can count on one hand how many people I would not feel comfortable running into in the grocery store. And I'm the kind of guy that if I did run into them, I'd, I'd make them feel awkward and, <laughs> you know, I'd have a friendly conversation. But I, I'm convinced that what the gospel is offering us is a life that is so free that you don't decide I'm not gonna go to that restaurant because that person might be there. That's how free the offer is to come to Jesus and surrender all. So if you're interested in that, let's, let's get into it because we're talking today about heart change towards people. Now let's get in Acts chapter 10. We're gonna start in verse one. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Sounds like a bunch of bruisers, huh? The Italian cohort? You don't cross them. A devout man who feared God with all his household, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, that's around 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God Come in and say to him, Cornelius. All right, this is fascinating. Because we've got a Gentile, not an apostle, not even a Jew. He's getting visions. And in this vision, an angel says to him, Cornelius. And he stated at him, excuse me, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's going to be lodging with this other guy named Simon who's a tanner and his house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, pause right there. Let's do a quick recap with a map that I was unable to show you last week because of technical difficulties. So let's put that map on the screen. What we're looking at here is Peter's ministry tour. This is what happened in the tail end of Acts 9 and is starting to carry over into Acts 10. We've got Peter, he was an apostle. He was stationed in Jerusalem. He goes on this ministry tour where he starts traveling to these different cities and preaching the gospel and amazing things are happening. He goes to the city Luda over here to the left. That's what the red line is. I even give you arrows to see which direction he's walking. He goes to Luda. He heals a person there who's sick for multiple years. 
The people in Joppa hear that Peter is over in Luda and they say, hey, we've got this girl that we really love. Her name is Dorcas. She passed away. Can you come and pray for her? Maybe raise her from the dead. Peter goes over to Joppa, prays for her. She comes back to life. So at this part in Acts 10, Peter is in Joppa and Caesarea is directly north on the sea. And that is where Cornelius is. So now that you've got a visual picture kind of what's going on, it's important to know that Caesarea was primarily a Gentile city. And so it's not just this one guy, Cornelius, in the city. If the gospel gets presented to Cornelius and it spreads out from there, this is a Gentile city. And this is, this is kind of like a major, major city win for the people in this region as far as Gentiles getting saved. Now, we also know that Philip lived in Caesarea. And it's possible that one of the reasons why Cornelius knew to pray to the Lord is because Philip had a conversation with him. That's just implied though. So we've got Cornelius, a centurion in Caesarea. Now Cornelius Cornelius is not the first centurion we run across. In Matthew chapter eight, Jesus runs across another centurion. And in that text, Matthew eight, uh, 10 and 11, the centurion comes to him and says, Jesus, can you come and heal my servant? And Jesus is like, yeah, lead me to your house. He says, you don't need to, I understand how authority works. I've got men under me and I just say go and they go and they carry my authority with them. So if you just say the word, I trust that my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a little section of the scripture that we kind of uh, miss often because we're so caught up in the fact that the centurion had more faith than most of the people Jesus met in Israel. But Jesus tells this centurion that you're not the first, or well, you are the first, but you won't be the last. There are going to be multiple people coming from all corners of the globe to recline at God's table. So we have Isaiah telling us that Gentiles are gonna get saved. We have Jesus telling us that centurion, telling the centurion that Gentiles are gonna get saved. And in Acts chapter 10, the very beginning, we've got an angel telling Cornelius that Gentiles are about to get saved. Now, I wanna bring this out. You may have heard this if you spent any time in church and if you've ever heard anybody kind of dabble around in Greek, this is a, a famous thing a lot of people like to share, but I felt like it was important at this moment. In Greek, there are two main words for time. There is chronos and there is kairos. Now, chronos is like uh, calendar time. Chronos would be like 3 p.m. An angel appeared to Cornelius. But kairos time is specific time marked for a purpose. It is a significant moment in time where from that point forward, that time, Everything is different on the other side of that. And the reason why I bring this up is because what is happening in Acts chapter 10, verse three, is that Kronos and Kairos are converging. It was time for Gentiles to enter the kingdom at 3 p.m. at Cornelius' house. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because I think it's important for us to consider 
whether Cornelius knew that his 3 p.m. prayer time would be this significant. Probably not. But we are told that he was a devout man and this was his normal routine. He prayed regularly. So you've got a guy who is not considered part of God's family setting his schedule up so that he regularly tries to meet with the Lord. And it's one of those meetings that the Lord actually meets with him. There is tremendous value in devoting yourself to regular routines of prayer. Because you never know when the Lord is gonna meet you at that moment. Now he promises he'll meet you every time you pray, but there are these significant kairos moments where if you just choose, I'm gonna structure my life in a way where this is gonna become a part of who I am, you have set yourself on the same path that God likes walking down regularly. And you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna bump into him, for lack of a better phrase. And when you do, often, there are these moments where when you walk out of that time of prayer, that prayer closet, things in your life are never the same. You don't look at things the same. You don't talk about things the same. When, does, when do those moments happen? Well, they can happen when you set aside time to go to some conference and hear a nationally renowned speaker teach the word of God with some eloquence. It may happen on a Sunday morning when, when, uh, when I'm teaching the word or when you're in a time of worship. Those are all times where the Lord may speak to you, but you cannot discount the fact that you spend, you can spend more time on your knees at your house praying without me or a, or a, a nationally known speaker or a podcast person or somebody leading worship. You don't need me. You don't need that. What you need is regular devoted times of getting on your face before the King of Glory and he will meet you there, okay? Let's go to verse nine. It says, the next day as they were on their journey, so these, these guys that Cornelius sent, they're heading down to Joppa. They're approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's around noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. That happens to me all the time when I start praying. But while, he was, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, things that a good Jewish boy were not allowed to eat according to the law of Moses. And a voice came to him in this vision and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. And while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, 
hey, there's three guys at your front door. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation because I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for you coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, he's an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now that's important, we'll come back to that in a minute, but Peter didn't leave alone, he brought some friends up to Caesarea with him. Now let's pause right there and back back up to nine to kind of cover what we discussed. Because the writer of Acts, Luke, he's panning out from Cornelius in Caesarea and he's zooming in to Peter in Joppa. And what do we find Peter doing in Joppa? He's doing the exact same thing that Cornelius was doing, regularly praying and spending time with the Lord. I don't know how much, how much more value the scripture can put on these routines of setting aside time in your day to pray to your Father. It's so important on so many different levels. That is primarily where most of the change takes place. And I'm convinced through a lot of years of ministry and many times sitting across somebody and counseling. Without fail, I can connect the dots between somebody's difficulty in transforming or lack of desire to transform. I can connect a straight line to a lack of prayer. Because transformation really starts with the idea that I'm submitted to a higher authority and what he says goes. And the reason why I struggle so often to change is because I don't want a higher authority telling me what to do. I want to be the higher authority. And that's what stops change. That's why people don't transform. Because they don't like getting in the presence of the person who does the transforming. We see Peter getting into the presence of the Lord, praying. He gets hungry. And he sees this vision. Now, Acts 10 is primarily, for our purposes today, for studying the scripture, it's primarily about examining what it is that the gospel asks of us. And that is to have a change of heart towards other people. Now that is a work that the Spirit does inside of you, but it's also a command that the Lord is telling Peter to walk out. So it's a not a either or, it's not a well I'm just sitting around waiting for the Lord to do this thing in my heart and then I'll start treating people differently or I'm gonna start treating people differently and then the Lord's gonna work in my heart. It's not either or, it's both and and they happen at the same time. There is a thing that the Spirit does on the inside of you and there is a way that you start responding and acting out and walking in obedience, you follow? That is primarily where we're going, but there are these little moments that I don't want to pass up that I think are helpful and beneficial for us allowing the scripture to shape our theology. And one of those are our understanding of things like dreams and visions. 
So for a moment, I want to talk about dreams and visions. Now, there are two main primary perspectives on this. We discussed this in Acts chapter 1 about people understanding that there's a sensationist view that most of these supernatural events ended at the end of the first century era when all the apostles died off. And then there is another perspective that these things continued. And we're going to lump dreams and visions in with those two understandings of primarily spiritual gifts. And I shared with you that um, the, the, the first um, perspective would be that these things have ceased, and the reason why primarily is because we have the Word of God. We've got this. I don't, God's not giving people dreams anymore because you've got this. This is, this is all you need. The problem with that is that in Acts 2, 17 through 20, when Peter quotes Old Testament prophets, he says that the closer we get to the end times, dreams and visions, the spirit pouring himself out on his sons and daughters, prophecy, that stuff isn't gonna taper off, it's gonna ramp up. And just by the sheer way time works, we are closer to his return today than we were yesterday. And certainly when we were 2,000 years ago. And so the closer we get to his return, scripture's teaching us there's not a decline in these kind of spiritual phenomenon, there is an incline. This stuff will ramp up. Also, Jesus shares in John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, not just a few of you, not just a couple of you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works these they will do. And so the scripture is teaching us that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, we should, as the people of God, expect that the kingdom of heaven is going to continue to bombard the kingdom of this world. And the, the unseen realm is going to become more and more prevalent in this seen realm. And you will start seeing it manifested in ways like the kingdom of darkness having more and more and more influence over things like worldly systems and governments. And hopefully you'll see the spiritual sense of the kingdom of God filling his church and this rising of the light and the kingdom of God so that the closer we get to his return, it is not confusing where the line is on good and evil and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And I'm personally convinced that one of the reasons, or one of the ways that God will continue to um, bombard this earthly realm that we see with the kingdom of heaven, one of the ways he does that is by speaking to his people regularly through the Holy Spirit. And that includes visions and dreams. Now I get it. You may be sitting there thinking like, I don't like that at all. Well, ask yourself, why do you not like that? Why do you not like something that the scripture tells you should be normal in the Christian life? I think the answer to that question, if we're honest with ourselves, is because it means you're not in as much control as you thought you were. And that's really what we have an issue with. It's not the weird spiritual stuff. It's the fact that the weird spiritual stuff is out of our control. And I don't mean out of your control like possessing your body and making you do things that you don't want to do. That, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that there is a God in heaven who is orchestrating all things for his good. And by his grace, he chooses to work through his people 
and his people don't get an opinion on the matter. And this is a perfect example. Peter, I'm not asking your opinion on Gentiles. I'm telling you that from this day forward, you have to stop calling them common. Now, I'm bringing this up because I believe that God still speaks in dreams and visions, but this is really important. I'm also a firm believer that dreams and visions should be weighed against Scripture and they should never contradict. Hey, listen, God's not going to give you a dream that says, that married man is supposed to be my husband. That's not going to happen. Okay? That's not the God of heaven. That's the God of this world. That's Satan. He's behind that stuff. There are clear outlines for the way that he operates and what is normal in his kingdom. And he's not going to contradict those things by some vision or dream that he gave you. But he will give you dreams and visions in order to reinforce or demand of things that are already in Scripture. Now, how do dreams and visions work? Well, we can look at the way it works with Peter. This is all through Scripture, but we're just looking at Peter's today. Peter's dream was filled with symbolism, and most dreams and visions are filled with symbolism. And this is the reason why dreams and visions are so powerful, because they are able to take really complex concepts and demonstrate them in in just a simple word picture. So you've got Peter standing there, and what God is demanding of him is, I want you to stop looking at the Gentiles as common and unclean and not worth my love because I'm going to send you to them. How am I going to demonstrate that to you? I'm going to show you a sheet full of foods you can't eat and say, go ahead and start eating. That just, just the sheer fact that Peter is sitting there in prayer and the Lord says, eat that pulled pork (laughs) communicates far more than the Lord saying, Peter, it's time for you to get over yourself and start witnessing to the Gentiles. It is, the reason why it's so much more is because it is violent in the way that it wakes you up to the prejudice that you have. That's why he does it. And in this section and often what he's doing in our lives He's demanding what we talked about at the beginning. I want you to change your heart towards people that are different than you. Now the thing about dreams and visions, I think the reason why God gave Peter this dream and vision about the food is because this is something that was rooted deep in him that he understood the moment he saw it. Now we see that it was kind of perplexed until the second part of it showed up and all of a sudden these unclean Gentiles are standing at the door We see that he got it because his response was not, you can't come into my home. His response was, come into my home and I'm going to let you stay the night. He got it at that point. He understood what the Lord was speaking. And in dreams and visions that God gives us, there are some things that kind of the symbolism supersedes everything, right? Biblically speaking, the number three almost always refers to some form or fashion of the Trinity or the way that the Godhead works. All right, seven in the Bible, almost universally, the number of completion, okay? So those numbers he kind of uses regularly, but there are some times where he'll speak to you in a dream or a vision, and he'll use images that are familiar to you that really will speak something specific or 
profound to you that, that I, I won't understand why train sets are so significant to you. Right? But you grew up, and that was the thing you did with your dad. You spent all this time working these little train sets out and just building. And, and that, that, a train set is one symbol of, of the magnitude of all the time your dad spent with you and how much he loves you. Right? And so God gives you a, a, a vision or a dream. And in this dream, there's a train set in there. And you wake up from that, you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with the sense that my father loves me. I don't get that. But there's something wrapped in that symbolism that's powerful for you. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we as the people of God have, have to start doing a better job of taking our dreams seriously. Right? Not every dream is because of a show that you watched or some pizza that you had the night before. There are some dreams that the Lord speaks in. And sometimes you'll be driving on the road and the Lord will just, in your mind, he'll just kind of give you a picture of something. The purpose of him doing that is to spur you to prayer, to spur you to action, to spur you to transformation. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because in this chapter, that's what it's about. And I don't think he's done doing that because he's not done changing us. And if this is on his resume of things he does, we don't get to just say like, well, not that thing, because I don't like it. It's weird, not that one. That's not how this stuff works. Let's go down to verse 24. It says, on the following day, they entered Caesarea, so they went north. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, man, stand up. I'm just a man like you. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Transformation. And that's why when I was sent for, I came without objection because I knew what the Lord wanted from me and I want to do it. So I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, man, four days ago, just about this time, I was praying in my house in the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, freaked me out. And this man said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been answered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of a Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come so now, therefore, that we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say. Pause right there. Because we're starting to see how Peter is allowing the Spirit to change his heart. We saw that he allowed these three Gentiles to spend the night. He's now boldly declaring in front of not just Cornelius, but his entire family that God is requiring something of him and he is willing to surrender it. And then he compares notes about what the Holy Spirit is up to. I love that part. He's standing there and he's like, all right, I see what God's doing. Tell me what he told you. And so he has Cornelius tell the story about what happened to him. Why is that significant? Because 
it reinforces what we talked about earlier about dreams and visions. God's not going to contradict himself. And so when you feel like the Lord is speaking to you, maybe through a dream or a vision, or he's just speaking to you and you hear his voice, when he speaks, weigh it against the word and weigh it against community. Because chances are, if God is showing you something, he's showing that same thing to somebody else. That's called confirmation. That's how we know what we're doing. He's actually behind and not some bizarre plan that he's only telling one person. That's how you know when the Lord says, hey, you need to go do this thing. Sell everything you have and move to Boca Raton. Okay, well, I guess I'm... No, you, you bring that to the pastors. You bring that to your small group. You say, look, this is what the Lord is showing me. Is anybody getting a check? Anybody? It's like, yeah, man, I actually had a dream last night that you were in Boca Raton. <laughs> but you also might get a bunch of people saying, hey, look, man, I love you. I'm not feeling like the Spirit's in that at all. That sounds like a terrible idea. Don't do that. Man, praise God for confirming what he's saying through his word and his community. And this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, share, share, me, share with me what the Lord did with you. Because I want to know if God is sharing this with anybody else or if it's only me. And that's the reason why I said earlier in verse 23 that he brought some brothers from Joppa. One of the things that I learned while I was studying from this is that many commentators say that that little section of uh, Peter bringing some of the brothers from Joppa was the Jewish way of confirming through witnesses. Peter knew what God was up to. He knew the Gentiles were about to get saved and he wanted more than just himself to be there the moment it happened so that when other people back in Jerusalem start saying, well, well, Peter, was there anybody else there? Did anybody else hear the conversation? Did anybody else see the spirit of God fall? How do we know that God is actually saying, sending, saving Gentiles? Well, I, I've got like, uh, you know, Matt was there. Joshua was there. Josiah was there, I'm trying to circle through how many Jewish names I know. <laughs> Jude was there. We were, we were all there, we all saw it. So we can confirm that what happened was actually the Lord and not just one person making something up that we all want so desperately to happen. Listen, when the Lord is working, it is obvious to everyone because the Lord confirms what he's doing through multiple people all the time. Let's go to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Truly, I have had a heart change. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, he starts preaching the gospel here. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptisms through John proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and, the, and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. 
who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be, judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him and all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He preaches the gospel, and then what happens? Verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed. The witnesses, blown away. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles and those Gentiles started speaking in tongues. Now what is tongues? Tongues is a spiritual language. It is a spiritual gift that God gives some people in order to speak in a language that they don't know for the purposes of edifying God or for prayer. It is a language that you use that you do not speak naturally, that you do not understand, that you use to speak directly to God. It's not for other people to listen to and understand. It is a language directly to God. It was given at Pentecost as a way to demonstrate God's might and power to disperse languages, like he did at Tower of Babel, and to collect languages. None of this is difficult for him. The idea that he can supersede our language, that he could give some of his followers the ability to pray things to him without them fully understanding in their natural language what that means, he's got power over that. Now the natural thing that comes up when you read this is why did they speak in tongues when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? There's one primary reason. It is to connect this moment to the moment at Pentecost. The reason why these Gentiles started speaking in tongues the moment they got saved was to demonstrate to the entire world, the witnesses, to Peter, that the Holy Spirit is for the Gentiles too. They have a full experience and full access to everything that the Jews experienced on the day of Pentecost. They are not weird stepkids. They are full members of the family and the Spirit is poured out on them just like it was on the Jews. Now the next question that typically gets raised is, if we see this, people speaking in tongues the moment they get saved, is this a model that we can use to validate real salvation and spirit infilling? Can we use this as an example? Can we say, okay, we know you're saved and filled with the spirit because there's this evidence of speaking in tongues? Well, if that was the purpose of this text, then that would be true, but that's not the purpose of this. And so no, we can't use this as a model for that. This text is used as a specific way of validating that Gentiles are now fully 
in the kingdom of God and there is no restrictions on the benefits. So what do I I mean by that? Why am I saying this? I'm saying this and we mentioned this in Acts chapter one. Verse Corinthians 12, 29 through 30 is pretty clear. Not everyone will receive the gift of speaking in tongues. Not everyone will receive the gift of prophecy. Not everyone will receive the gift of teaching or miracles. But some, at the moment of salvation, when they're filled with the Spirit, they may receive a gift of the Spirit like these folks did here. Those gifts may be imparted at a later date when the the Spirit fills them at a point after they have been saved. But we can't use this text as an example to say, see, once you get saved, there's this other thing you gotta now do. And if it doesn't happen, then the original thing wasn't valid. I think it's important for me to be as transparent as possible with you when I'm teaching these things. This experience here is primarily for the purposes of connecting the moment to Pentecost, but it does show how at salvation, the Holy Spirit can fill people and they can be given specific spiritual gifts like the gift of speaking in tongues. And this is the experience that I had. I got saved in 1998 at a summer camp and the moment I got saved, I started speaking in tongues. And that is a gift that has carried with me in my experience as my Christian walk. And just full transparency, I still pray in tongues regularly today. I pray every day in tongues. But that does not make me any more spiritual or significant or special than anybody else. Some of you may have that gift. Some of you may not have that gift. There are other gifts I don't have. There are some gifts that I do have. Teaching is a primary gift that I operate in. But I'm speaking on on this specific gift as a person who has experienced a moment exactly like this. And I'm bringing this up because I think that one of the real issues that we have as a church, not Red Hills Church, but the the church in America, is that under all of the surface, we're convinced that this thing that God is doing called church doesn't actually demand too much of you. It really, for all intents and purposes, is being being in a building on a Sunday morning, maybe reading this every now and then, maybe praying when things kind of get tough, but there is no sense that when you come to Jesus, you are submitting and surrendering and turning your back on desires and affections of this world and, and really emptying yourself so that he can fill you and that the only thing that comes out is the stuff that he wants to come out. And the moment we start getting up to that wall of of talking about him demanding things of you that might be out of your control or out of your comfort zone, no, 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 we're just gonna back it up, back it up, because I was pretty convinced that this whole Christianity thing was really just about me just being a good person. No. That is not what the gospel is about. It is Jesus saying, I'll do everything on your behalf, come to me, and when you get here, I'm gonna change you. 
And then I've got a big plan to change the world through you. And that's going to require significant gifts and empowerment so that you can accomplish things that you could not accomplish on your own. I'm going to do this through you, and I'm going to give you gifts that will empower you to do it. And you're like, well, I don't, I, mm, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know about prophecy. I'm not down with dreams. and That gets really weird. Look, we believe in a guy who rose from the dead. We believe in a guy who's going to crack the sky, come back from heaven, purge the earth of sin, and build a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we believe. The idea that he would infill his people with some gifts to empower us to accomplish things we couldn't accomplish on our own, on the spectrum of weird, that's not even close to worshiping a guy who came back from the dead. But what it does of you is it requires you to get over things that you previously said, well, well, Christianity is this nice little box and everything that is nice and good, we can fit in here and I don't have to, we don't think about it or be challenged. No, I'm sorry who sold you that, but that's, that's not this. And so what is being offered today? Mm. Is this wonderful example that God is faithful to keep his word through thousands of generations, but also keep on transforming people and it never gets old. So what I want of us today is to look at what the writer of Acts is saying to us, to look at what God has done in keeping his word and keeping his word and transforming us and respond to that faithfulness with faithful lives to him. To respond to his faithfulness with faithful preaching of the gospel to people who maybe we previously had considered common or unclean or not worth our time or not worth our affection. But even more than that, responding to his faithfulness was starting to become more faithful in devotions of prayer and loving one another, and fearing God, and giving freely and sacrificially. That is what I think is a proper response to a God who says, I'm gonna be faithful no matter what's happening in the world, and that faithfulness means what I say will always come true, and I will change you. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.